Galatians, if you'd like to turn there. Good morning. Galatians chapter 5. As we as we know already, as we as we contemplate scripture and look at scripture and and begin to look at the Word of God, we we know that within the pages of uh, of the Bible of, of God's Word that there is wisdom, um, a great deal of, of wisdom, wisdom that God has intended for us to absorb, that God has intended for us to learn, that God has intended us to grow into, as you've called this, us to grow into this level of, of mature faith. And we can't ever, uh, ever stop then spending time in God's Word. Can't put it aside. Can't allow it to be shelved. We cannot allow it simply to become something that collects dust somewhere. It is the very Word of God. In Galatians chapter 5. Passage, starting in verse 22, telling us this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. All of these characteristics, all of these uh, wonderful characteristics that come from walking in step with the Spirit are how we should live. And we should be growing into them. We should be growing into them more and more. Now we need to we need to embrace what God has called us to do here, how He's called us to live, and understand that all of these characteristics come from this idea of them walking in step with the Spirit. That we desire to have our lives look like this. And if you're still there in Galatians chapter five, I want to want to look a little closer at verse twenty-five. It says, "Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step." with the Spirit. The call there is to walk in step with the Spirit, to walk in step with God. To have this as our heart's desire, that we walk hand in hand in step, in sync with our God. This is our desire always for this to be true, that in our in our conduct, in our speech, in our in our dealing with our Christians, with non-Christians, in in the very hearts of who we are, that makes up the core of who we are, that we do these things. And God has given us His Word. God has given us His Word that we can then open up and look at what was written there all those years ago that has not, has not faltered in any way, has not faded in any way, has not changed or been lost in any way, but God has given us His Word so that we have a greater idea, a better understanding of how to go about accomplishing this. Of being successful in this. 
what it looks like when we're successful in this, what it looks like when we fail in this, what it looks like when we come back to this, what it looks like when we repent, what it looks like when we understand sin, what all of those things that are written, written in God's Word so that we have a greater understanding of the call that God has placed on us when it says that we need to have these things, when we need to do these things. So that we know. So that we understand. Have you ever uh, thought back to your days in school? How, how many of you, if you're being honest, could uh, admit that you could have probably paid a little more attention in school? Or at least had that one teacher that was really hard to listen to. Not because they were a bad person, it just was hard, was difficult. So none of you are willing to admit that you had a hard time. I was the, I was the only one, that's all right. I, I had a hard time sometimes listening in class. Now, uh, unfortunately, I could get away with it a little bit. I could not pay attention and still get enough of a grade to continue on. Um, which probably only encouraged that behavior. But there was this, there was times when it was just hard to listen. And if you've ever been in a class like that, which I assume I'm the only one since I didn't see any hands go up, I'll explain it to you. What happens is you get in a class like that and all of a sudden the teacher realizes that you're not paying attention and they ask you a question. A specific question about what they've been talking about. And you're looking at them with this wonderfully blank face because you have absolutely no idea what they're talking about and they're expecting an answer, right? So what's the answer to this question? And you're looking at them like, seven? No, oh, wait, we're in biology. Seven doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Maybe it was math. Uh, and you have no idea. God doesn't want us to, to be that. God doesn't want us to be in that situation. God doesn't want us to be floundering for an answer. We will all stand before our God at the time of judgment. We will all stand and give an account of our lives, both good and bad. We will all have to we'll have our knees bowed before Him. Our tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Will we stand in confidence? Will we be there in a position of confidence? Or will we be standing there searching for the answer of what, what should we say? What should, what should we do? God has given us and provided us already that answer. He's given us His Word. And we can open it and understand then what it means for us, for our hearts, for our desire to be close to God, for our relationship with God. We know how to accomplish this Already, We already know what it looks like to be in a right relationship with God because we've seen the example of Jesus in His action over and over in His choices of words over and over in His decisions on how to act and interact with people over and over again. That this is the call that God has placed on us to do this in the same. And we should feel extremely, extremely blessed to have the Word of God. And I hope that when you count uh, the many blessings that God has given you, that when you give thanks for those many blessings to our Lord God in heaven, that you understand that this is an amazing blessing. I want you to think for just a second, and you, you go back into, into Acts, and we see the story of, of Stephen. 
And Stephen is being uh, martyred. And it's this, this kind of first recorded martyr of, uh, of, for Christ. And, and we see this and it's appalling to us. We have it recorded for us because it tells us about what the Christians were going to go through, what they're going to go through. How many of you think about the world in terms like that now? Because we, we think about the, the, the devastation that Christians went through under, under the Romans, under Paul, under Nero, and, and in those situations. How many of you think of the world like that now? That Christians have to suffer for, for the name of Christ. That Christians have to give their lives for the name of Christ. We have, uh, we have very little understanding of it. Because we're, we're so tremendously blessed where we live. I mean, the freedom that we have in, in our society, the freedom that we have uh, in, in the government system that we're in, the freedom of, of religion, this freedom of speech. And sometimes we look at all of that and we see uh, the flaws in it and we see all the, the negative of it. But we sit here today with that freedom to be able to open up God's Word. And yet, that's not true around the world. There were many nations over and over and over again that are martyring Christians, outright killing Christians. Where, If you admit that you're a Christian, you know your life is in danger. That you're, even if you admit to your, your spouse that you're, a, that you're a Christian, that they're required by law to report to you in countries such as uh, North Korea and others. That they're required by law to report you as a Christian so that there is a record of your faith in God. And not so that it can be celebrated. Sometimes I, I wonder and think about this freedom that we have and what does that spur us onto? Does it challenge us? Is there an outright challenge in the freedom that we have on what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with the freedom to read God's Word? What are you going to do with the freedom to teach and share God's Word? What are you going to do with the freedom that you have in Christ where you are right now? What are you going to do with the blessings that God has given you? Do we look at it as a challenge? Often we talk about the blessings that we have. You know, we talk about the blessing of the freedom that we have and the, the comfort that we have, that we can come to this building and, and have relatively zero fear of persecution. We'd have no fear of, of government interference. We have no fear of, of the military pulling up to the door to, to arrest us. Now, there are other bad things uh, that happen, but we live in this, in this bubble. Do we, do we view that as a challenge, or do we become uh, complacent in that freedom and think because of that freedom that I can just relax. That I no longer have to think about what this means for me. I no longer have to think about in the teaching of this, in the sharing of this, in the, in the call that this has placed on us. We looked at uh, that call last week at, in the afternoon in Matthew uh, chapter 28. This call to go and to teach and to preach and to baptize. Do we no longer look at that call because of the freedom that we have? You know, God didn't always reveal himself in that way. We look in the Old Testament and God came to the prophets and God came to the priests and others and told them this is the, this is the word of God. And they would go and they would teach and, 
and sometimes the nation would would be disobedient. Sometimes the nation wouldn't listen, and God would hand them over to be punished. And then He would call them back, and there would be this call to come back to God. He has placed that call now on, on our hearts. He's placed that on our hearts that we can open up God's Word and we can see what it is and know what it says. Turn into Hebrews. If you would. Hebrews, the first chapter. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom all also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in Heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which the angels did God ever say, You are my Son. Today I have become your Father. Or again, I will be His Father and He will be my Son. And again, when God brings His firstborn into the world, He says, "What All God's angels worship Him. In speaking of the angels, He says, He makes His angels' spirits and His servants' flames of fire. But the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has set You above Your companions by anointing You with the oil of joy. He also says in the beginning, Lord, You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not the angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So as we have this revelation, as we have this this word given to us, one of the things that we clearly see that Hebrews is telling us and the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Christ is the Son. Jesus is the Christ, and He is the Son of God. As we look at this, this blessing that we have in the Word of God, we have this confidence, we have this understanding that we do not need to question our salvation because it comes from the very Son of God who is far superior. So we have, we have this, Jesus, who is the Son, now who came and lived and died for us. Can we understand this? Can we understand and know what this means for us? That Jesus is the very Son of God. Do you you fully understand Father, Son, and Spirit? No, yes. 
do we have an understanding of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that they are three in one, that they are that they are God, and yet that they are separate, that the Son who will come back and take those who are faithful will gather him up, but the Son who is God doesn't know the, the time when the Son will come because only God the Father knows the time where God the Son will will come. So all of that is just perfectly clear. We understand all of those things. And, and we've been given the Spirit who is also God, and we're to walk in step with the Spirit as we talked about earlier. So do we understand then in the giving of the Son that God is literally dividing Himself, that He gives His Son who becomes man and walks in our place and goes to the cross in our stead so that the Son, who is a part of God as we see it and know it, then dies and is separate from God, that God turns His back on Him, and that He has to then hang on the cross taking on our sin and our death in our place. Because the, the Christ, the Messiah, is the Son, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is connected to God, that God is sacrificing then a part of who he is, so that we who are his creation, who are sinful, who are his enemies, might live. Do we understand the absolute power and wonder of that? That God loves us that much, that he loves us so dearly, that he's giving of his son, that we might have life. Hebrews chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. Hebrews chapter 2. Starting in verse 10. I will, we'll go back in verse 9. It says, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So here's, here's God sending his son so that he can bring many sons to glory. That he can bring those of us who are then sinful into salvation through his perfection, through what he suffered on the cross, through his death, his burial, and resurrection. That God sends his son so that many can be made sons, can be made children of God. That we can sit here now and be children of the Most High God. What were we before? What, what were we before that? Were we not God's creation? Surely we were, right? God, God created us. Did, did God not love us dearly? Again, clearly, God, God so loved the world that God loves us dearly. But there is a difference. There is a difference between standing outside of the Son and being clothed in the Son, of taking on Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, of having faith and believing in Him, of being made a Son through what Christ suffered on the cross. That we get to come into this now and understand that now we can stand in confidence because we are being made into this child of God. That we are now a part of this kingdom that is eternal. One of the, the absolute important aspects of what we just read in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that the, he makes the pioneer of their salvation perfect 
through what he suffered. You go into, into Hebrews uh, chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, you can turn there. It says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. God sent his son, and he was faithful. And in that, he brings then us into this point of salvation. Because he was faithful, because he went to the cross in perfection, he was able to take on our sin and our death. You look at the temptation of Jesus. And we, ha- we get this glimpse of the temptation of Jesus. And, and for some reason I've had this flawed thinking that I've had to get over that that, that was the only f- temptation that Jesus ever suffered. That he, that he conquered this temptation. That, that Satan came to him and tempted him those three times. And then Satan fled from him. And never again was Jesus, was Jesus ever tempted. Now, we, we don't have for us a, a recorded event like we, we do originally in the temptations of, uh, of Jesus. But did Jesus... Share in the temptations of mankind. Yeah, it tells us that as our high priest, he knows what it's like to be us, right? That he knows what it's like to be in this human world as human, to go through all of the trials of, of mankind, to go through all of the temptation, temptations of, of mankind. And yet what we see and understand is that he did not give in to those things. That he was faithful to God in everything. And it's because of that that he can then hang on the cross in our place, in our stead. Because if he had faltered, if he had sinned, then he could not have. He no longer could have been this lamb without blemish that went to the cross for us. But he was faithful in everything. And because he was, we can have life. We looked, as I mentioned earlier, we looked a little bit at Matthew chapter 28 uh, last week. And it says in Matthew chapter 28, as he begins to give this great commission, that all power and authority has been given to me, he says. That Jesus is superior to all. And again, we, we, we go through this in Hebrews where it talks about Jesus being superior to the angels. That he is above all of that. That he is the Son of God. Turn into, into Hebrews. Again, if you'd like to turn over into Hebrews chapter 7. There you go. Hebrews chapter 7 uh, in verse 20. Give you a second. Hebrews uh, 20. Uh, not Hebrews 20. Hebrews 7 verse 20. And it says, And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus had become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests who, since death, prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son 
who has been made perfect forever. So he is, he is our high priest. Not only is he our high priest, uh, but we actually look at our, the high priest that we need, that we desire, that, that is actually good for us. And Jesus then fits all of those uh, qualifications going back into 26. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is exactly what we as sinners need. Amazing how that works, isn't it? Amazing how that works, that God looks down at mankind and, and knows us and sees us. And at just the right time, sent His Son to die for us. Because He knows who we are. He knows what we need. We need a high priest that can intercede on our behalf. One who is holy, one who is blameless, one who is pure, one who is set apart, one who is exalted above the heavens. And again, in that passage that, that we read, one of the things that it points out that is extremely important is that He always lives. That he always lives. The high priests of the Old Testament, uh, what happened to them? Now, in contrast to Christ always living, they lived human lives, right? They lived human lives. Go back into verse 20. It says, For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. We have previous to this high priest that lived in weakness that were men that died. And they would have to continually sacrifice over and over and over, day in and day out, for their own sins and for the sins of the people. Because they were men. Not in perfection. But were flawed. What a contrast. What a contrast it is to look at our Savior and to know that He lives. And to know that he lives because he is perfect. That he is our high priest. That he intercedes on our behalf. And he doesn't have to, doesn't have to go and sacrifice again and again and again. It's not because man stopped sinning. But because he was without sin. And his sacrifice was once and for all, for all of us. And it says at the very end of that passage read in Hebrews chapter 7, at the very end of verse 28, it says, talking about him, he has been then made perfect forever. That been made perfect forever is also that we are connected to, when we are connected to Christ Jesus. The eternity that we share, the life that we share in Him, is forever. I'm going to count the smiles on the faces of people in the crowd. There's, there's one or two. Does that not make you joyful to know that you are connected to your Savior, to your God... That you have been given the Spirit. And this is something that is being made perfected forever. That your eternity with God will be forever. Because Christ who sits at the very right hand of the majesty in heaven right now. Who lives. Is your Savior. Is your Messiah. And is washing you clean. Is interceding on your behalf. 
because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his broken body, his blood, that we have life in eternity. And I know we're not a, a real big amen group. That's all right. But that should be joyous to us. We should be ecstatic when we hear that again and again, over and over, what God has given to us, because we need that. Oh, we need that, don't we? We need that blood of, of Jesus to wash us clean. What's the point of Hebrews? If you have a study Bible, you could, uh, you could cheat a little. Go in the very, just before chapter 1, it'll give you why it was written. Some of them will differ, so take some of them with a grain of salt. But uh, why was Hebrews written? What's the point of Hebrews? I'm even giving you a second to go and look at it if you have a study Bible. Remember we wondered what it was like to be a part of the New Testament church? I mean, this thing about it, what, what must it have been like with the joy and the excitement of, of having the apostles, having, having Paul and, and, and Peter and all the rest begin to teach and share about Jesus and, and, and to have this, you know, this amazing connection to those that literally sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him. Just imagine how amazing that must have been. To hear firsthand, or maybe even you yourself have been there and heard Jesus speak. How awesome that must have been. Or even in, in places where you kind of hear this kind of ripple effect of things that have happened in Jerusalem and in area. And then to have someone come and tell you, well, this is why, this is, this is what's going on. For those maybe who are of Jewish descent, who are waiting and longing for the Messiah to hear the news that the Messiah has come. Or, or those who were Greek or Gentile, who were, were searching for something, searching for God, searching for a connection, to hear that in your lifetime, that God had sent His one and only Son to, to save you, and now you get to be a part of this. You ever thought about how amazing that must have been? To, to go and to be able to talk with people who were there. To go and walk in the, in the places that Jesus has just been. We, could, we can do that. We can go now, back, later, and kind of retrace some steps. But just imagine what it was like to be there as it unfolded, or, or in the days or weeks or months after as it, as it actually unfolded. There's great... Just great excitement within the church, right? Peter begins to preach, and, and they're cut to the heart, and all of a sudden, people just begin to flock and respond. There's thousands added to the number. And even, in, even when persecution arises, and, and they kind of spread out from Jerusalem, they flee from Jerusalem, everywhere they go, Scripture says, everywhere they go, they begin to preach and teach, and more and more people are added to their number daily, that people are flocking to the truth. And it's amazing. So why then is Hebrews written? Hebrews is this amazing case for faith. 
But why, why, why do we need this, this call to faith? Why do we need this, this, this argument for faith? Why do we need this draw back to what is right and to faith if everything is so wonderful and amazing and joy? Because even in the moments when it is wonderful and amazing, there's questions, isn't there? Those who are in this excitement, now there begins to crop up false teaching. And what do we do? do, we respond? How, do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? How do we respond to false teaching? How do we respond to turmoil? How do we respond to heartache? How do we respond to maybe all the things that we brought with us? So we looked at Gnosticism or, or, or uh, uh, circumcision or all the other things from Jewish uh, kind of heritage or, or now from different Gentile or, or Greek religions. How do, how do we deal with those things? Because it's difficult, isn't it? So if you, were, if you were a Jew and had been a Jew your entire life, how hard is it then to just sever that cord and say, well, no longer do I believe in all of those things. No longer do I have this draw back to the sacrifices or, or to the priest or to the temple or to understanding of God. No longer do I have that. Or if you've come out of, uh, out of this, this Jewish or uh, Gentile or Greek religion, how hard is it just to say, well, I'm no longer going to believe any of those things. Is that, is that an easy thing or is that a difficult thing? Well, it's going to be difficult, right? You've, you've thought that your entire life. You've believed that your entire life. You've been taught that and, and maybe sat under your parents or had, who had other teachers learning you these things. Hebrews is this amazing and wonderful drawback to faith. One of the, one of the things we, we see clearly is that, that the Jews... Struggled with the idea of the law. They struggled with the idea of, of being out of the law. All of a sudden, hearing that it wasn't something that they had to adhere to anymore. We can, we can probably understand and grasp some of their struggle. There is a call to look to Jesus in these things. Go into Hebrews again. The passage there is Hebrews chapter 12. The very beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Other passages of Scripture will tell us that we, forgetting what is behind, we press on ahead. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, it says here, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Following in his word, you go back into Hebrews chapter 12. Jump down later, as you can see there on the board, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they do not escape when they refuse him who warned them on earth, how much... Less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. 
But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Who is it that speaks from heaven and from earth? Who is it that shakes the earth? When he speaks, it is, it is God, Jesus, that we have this understanding that we have to follow then in his word, that there is this draw then to faith, there is this draw back to him, there is this draw and understanding that our God is a consuming fire, that we need to be his. That we need to be his. We need, to, we need to respond in faith. And I would, I would challenge you to go through Hebrews and, and read Hebrews again and again and again. And I know that it seems like, well, that's a lot of times. That's all right. And understand the call for us as Christians to be a people of faith. And there will be times of uh, turmoil and struggle, of temptation and heartache and pain and goodness and and wonderful joy and there is a call in all of that to be faithful for this purpose not only this purpose but for this purpose in Hebrews chapter 12 we looked at just a minute ago in the very beginning of it I want to I want to look at it again therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Why, why does it say that? Then? What does is, what is Hebrews chapter 11 look like? You know Hebrews chapter 11, right? You know what it talks about? It goes through this, this wonderful list of amazing people who were faithful, who responded in faith, right? Who, who made choices of, of being faithful. And it says, therefore, because of all that, because we can, we can see that, because we're, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, there's a call then for us. Right? Because of that, being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, the call then for us is to then throw off all that hinders, all, all that entangles, the sin that, that it says so easily entangles, so that it allows us then to run a race in perseverance. To continue on in, in perseverance. You ever, you ever thought about the absolute wonder and power of the cloud of witnesses? What that means for us? Uh, of the change that that should invoke in, in us, the encouragement that it is, uh, the spurring us on to greater things, the challenge that it inherently is for us to come back to faith or to repent of sin. Because the, the, the cloud of witnesses here is something that spurs us on into a closer relationship with God, does it not? Let's read it again. And we can read it over and over again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus who is the 
pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This should be this call for us. Are you encouraged? Are you spurred on by the great cloud of witnesses? So there's a challenge there to go back and read Hebrews chapter 11, even though I've challenged you to read the whole thing already, but go back and read Hebrews chapter 11. I want to I ask another question. Has that great cloud of witnesses ended at the writing of Hebrews? Those who are mentioned in Hebrews, even though he says I could have mentioned more, uh, are the ones mentioned in Hebrew the only ones that make up this great cloud of witnesses? Now, obviously, out of Scripture, that's when he's talking about this great cloud of witnesses. He's talking about those that he has just shared. Can we add to that without adding to Scripture? Because I'm not advocating that. Can we look around and be spurred on by those who are faithful? Can we be encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus by seeing others who have fixed their eyes on Jesus? Can we be encouraged or spurred on to, to throw off all that it hinders, to throw off the sin that easily entangles, and to run with perseverance the race set before us by seeing others who are doing it? By seeing others who are faithful? Ninety-five percent, no, ninety-five is maybe a low estimate. Ninety-nine point nine percent of you are looking straight ahead right now. I apologize for that. Look around for a second. Only half of you did. That's all right. Uh, the other half saw you not looking around. But look around for a second. Who are you looking at? I don't mean that facetiously. I mean, uh, what, what are you looking at here? Who, who, who are you seeing? Are you seeing those who encourage? Are you seeing those that spur you on? Are you, are you seeing those that, that help you when you need to throw off that which hinders, that which easily entangles? Are you seeing those that help you run a race in perseverance? I've seen a lot of uh, two or three videos going around now where, where someone who's running a race who is, who is just catching up to the person who is winning, has been winning the race the whole time, and all of a sudden the person begins to get cramps or begins to stumble, and they stop and they help them finish the race. And you're thinking to yourself, well, you had it won if you just continued on. Because the person who was in the lead, they can't continue. You can see them. They're just struggling. They're, they're having a hard time even standing, let alone running. Why would you stop? What good is it if one of us finishes? That one? Great. But we help each other to run the race in perseverance. We help each other to run this race that's been marked out for who? Go back into Hebrews. Let us run the race with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. We can be for each other 
without adding ourselves into Scripture. We can, we can be for each other a great cloud of witnesses. And that leads back into where we started. And we started in, in Galatians. Leads back into that. This idea of, of walking in step with the Spirit. Of taking the fruits of the Spirit and applying them and how we live, how we treat one another, how we interact so that we can be this great cloud of witnesses that pulls each other along, that helps each other when we're struggling, that, that allows each other to know that we're there in, in love and encouragement and to spur each other on. And a call to faith. A call to faith for each and every one. I want to close by reading again in Hebrews. But going into Hebrews chapter 8, as you can see on the board, Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them up out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear.